All right, a uh, couple of announcements, and we'll, we'll pray before we get started. Um, the Simmons are in town, and uh, they're here for just under three weeks now, and uh, and they're from Jordan, and they're joining the body. They'll be here Sunday, and actually, he'll be baptizing uh, his son on Sunday. Uh, and kind of a goal that we have is that unless they want to eat by themselves, we have kind of a goal that they don't have a dinner alone while they're in town. It's a great opportunity to get to know them. So unless they want to eat dinner by themselves, let's really bother them to get to know them and love them and encourage them while they're here. Uh, also, uh, Julie Herbert's mom is uh, still in the hospital in Dallas and um, seems to be progressing. It's slow progression, but um, all the updates are that there is some response. At first, there was she had fallen, for those who don't know, and there was um, some what they thought severe brain damage at first, possible heart attack, and didn't didn't get much response from her for a few days, and we're a week out now. It happened last Wednesday, uh, at around 11, and uh, and she's doing better. So we need to be keep praying for that progression. I think the big thing last week was they hadn't heard much from her and at one point um David her husband said I love you and she said I love you more and it was just kind of this oh my goodness and so uh we need to be praying for them are there any other prayer requests anything going on we can pray about before we get started all right well, let's pray God we thank you uh for our time tonight <coughs> I pray that uh that it would be fruitful. I pray against distraction. I pray that uh, that we would truly be thankful for the word that you've given us, and I pray that as we go through it, that it would be uh, a time where we're growing in our faith, where we're understanding your will more, and uh, where we're truly seeking to be wholehearted in our attempt to glorify you by not living according to our will, but yours. Um, I'm thankful for the things that you teach us as we study the lives of uh, of our forefathers in the faith and and I, I pray that, uh, that you would grip us with, with very real truths tonight as we study. God, there's 67 verses in this chapter, and it's just, there's a thousand directions that we could go. And so I pray for uh, focus, for direction tonight. Um, pray for the Herberts as they are uh, continuing to move forward and pray for continued uh, uh, healing for Susan and, and uh, just discernment and wisdom for the doctors. Um, God, I thank you uh, for the things that you've done there uh, in the family and the provision you've given them. Um, again, God, as we look at the word, I just I pray for direction tonight. I pray um, that you would take distractions away. Even now, as I'm thinking about where the direction that we're going, I'm thinking about other things going on in life. And so I, uh, I pray that you would just let us focus on what we need to focus on. God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. What a privilege it is to come here and to have fellowship uh, with one another, to have perfect unity in Christ, to be able to open the word and have any understanding of what it means and to know the, the beautiful truth that you're a sovereign God and uh, that you're over all things. So God, I pray that tonight specifically we would really be encouraged by your word as I think there's a need for encouragement right now uh, with, within the body, just kind of in general. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Genesis 24. Last week, we were in Genesis 23, and we had, uh, uh, we, we said goodbye to Abraham and Sarah uh, because Sarah passed away last week, and we had covered, I think it was 62 years of their life over the course of 12 chapters. And uh, we just saw a number of things about the way that God works, 
uh, the way that people are, the way that we are, the way that we interact with one another. And uh, we kind of looked at their life and looked at all the beautiful things that we learned about God and His promises and His provision. And it's interesting because tonight we're, tra- we're kind of making a, a transition from looking at Abraham and Sarah to tonight we begin to look at Isaac and Rebekah. And as we look at Isaac and, and Rebekah, we're going to see a lot of the same things about God. And it's beautiful when we see these beautiful truths about a very real Heavenly Father uh, reiterated again and again. And we see it pass from this one generation. We know that on, uh, on the mountaintop where, where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, uh, as he thought, we, we knew from the get-go that it was a test uh, according to God's design. But as we saw that, we saw on the top of that mountain where there was a transition where no longer was God only the God of Abraham. But as they sat and as God provided the ram and as they sat back and they watched as, 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 they, as they sacrificed the lamb and, and they sat together and they looked at the Lord's provision, there they worshiped together. And we saw a transition at that point where it was no longer only the God of Abraham, but it became the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. So tonight as we go into Genesis chapter 24, we're going to begin to look more specifically at Isaac and his life and God's role through him as we saw uh, in the previous chapters, the whole through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And so before we get uh, into the text tonight, uh, a few questions that I want to start with as we look at Rebecca and her life. Everything that we've seen with Abraham and Sarah and how they've lived, and now we're making this transition to the life of Isaac and Rebecca. four questions that I want to look at, and I just, I'll share all four of them, and then I want us to have a little bit of a conversation. Why is Rebecca important? Before we even look at what happens here and how the transition is made and how she's even brought to Isaac and, and what her uh, character is and what her personality is, before we even look at those specifics, what do we know ahead of time about God's promises and why is Rebecca important? What will she be responsible for? What role will she be playing in the coming years and whose shoes will she be filling in a sort of way? Who will Rebecca be like? I hear whispers. I think, uh, Sarah, was it, were those the whispers? Sarah. Okay. Yeah, Sarah. Yeah. And so in a, in a way we see, you know, patriarch, father Abraham, matriarch, Sarah. We see this transition, transition to Isaac and Rebecca. And so we know that a lot of what we're going to see in the life of Rebecca is a lot of what we saw in the life of Sarah. Those are kind of, she'll be kind of filling those shoes in a sense, not, not specifically and directly, but in a sense. Um, what, were she, what will she be responsible for in the coming years? Her children. Yes, it's important at this point that Isaac and Rebekah get married and make babies. That's a very important thing because through Isaac shall your offspring be named. These promises that exist within God's covenant are so tied to Isaac that as we look at Isaac and Rebekah, we need to understand that Rebekah is an important figure. She's going to be uh, uh, raising children. She's going to be uh, the wife of Isaac who is moving into the head of the family here as Abraham is in his last years. So we're going to go into chapter 24, and as we climb into the text, I want you guys to know ahead of time that in chapter 24 there are 67 verses. And I'm about to read through all 67 verses, and it takes like 10 minutes to do it. But as we read, I want to encourage you to follow along in such a way that you climb into the story. Don't just sit back and listen idly. Climb into the story as we read this. Um, it's a beautiful narrative of the bringing together of two people by God that are sig- as significant to our heritage as Abraham and Sarah and the things we've looked at in the previous 12 to 13 chapters. It's a love story with a beautiful imagery. So import your senses, 
and experience the things that have been recorded. Don't just sit and listen to me read with my boring voice, but try and, try and import your senses into the story and, and listen as effectively as you can. Before I climb into that, turn to Psalm 111. Keep your finger in Genesis 24. We're going right back there. But I ran across this today, and it was very appropriate for us to start out in Psalm 111, verse 2. The whole chapter is appropriate, but just particularly verse 2 is what we're going to look at here before I read this aloud. It says, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. My hope tonight, as we look at Genesis 24, we're looking at the works of the Lord. We're looking at His work in the life of Isaac and Rebekah and even Abraham still. And we're looking at His works, and they're great. And I pray that as we study them together, that we are truly, um, that we delight in them, that there's true delight. And so that's why I'm, I'm encouraging you not to just listen to these 67 verses, kind of like, oh my goodness, he's still reading. But I encourage you to climb into it so that we can truly delight in what God has done because it affects us today. So Genesis 24, all 67 verses, here we go. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac." The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife from my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. The scripture states that at the time of Isaac's birth, Abraham was so old that he was as good as dead. That's what it says in Hebrews eleven twelve. Abraham was so old at the time of Isaac's birth, so old he was as good as dead. So, what does that make him now? Isaac was 37 at the time of his mother's death. We're about three years past his mother's death, so Isaac is 40. So to put this in perspective, when it says that Abraham was old, well advanced in years, he's 40 years past the time that he was considered good as dead. Okay? He's old. He's coming to the end of his life here. And it's interesting there in verse 2, it says, And Abraham, um, or the second part of verse 1, it says, And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. That's such an easy thing to read past. We get so used to seeing, and the Lord blessed him. Yeah, 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 I get it. We can't just read over that real quick. That's so particular to the beginning of this chapter. And the Lord blessed him as he said he would. The Lord has blessed Abraham in all things. This is a fulfillment of the promises that we've seen in the previous chapters. What are some of the promises that we've seen? Some of the promises that we, children of the promise, should be fueled by, as we've talked about. What are some of the promises that have been mentioned by God? God has said, I will what? I'll give you a baby. That's a big one. What else? What? I'll give you this land. What else? Yes. What else? 
What about in reference to his enemies? I'll protect you. I'll, I'll, I'll be the God who protects you. Here he says, uh, I will make your name great. You all remember that one? God says, I'll make your name great. And there's a big difference between a man trying to make his own name great and God making that man's name great. That's, that's when the man should embrace it. There's some people, oh, I don't want anyone to know me. I don't want anyone to know my name. I want to do everything behind the scenes. Well, if God is making your name great for a purpose, embrace that and do what Abraham did and anyone else who God made great and point them to God. Point to Jesus and say, it's not about me. It's not about what I've done. That's one of the things we see here with Abraham. So he said, I will make your name great. I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars and the sand and the seashore. I will protect you. So as we read, just it's so easy to know. Abraham was old, well advanced in years. The Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Don't read over that fast. Let that be an encouragement to you. All these promises that God made in the previous 12 to 13 chapters, starting in chapter 12. He never broke a promise. One of the things we see about men is that oftentimes they break promises. We see that through Scripture. They drop the ball. They screw up. They break promises. God never breaks His promises. And here is a reiteration in the second part of verse 1 that God blessed him how He said He would. Now verses 2 through 6, the the weird section, as I like to call it. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth. I've never sworn in this way. Um, It's like, put your hand here under a thigh and and, and swear. Now, uh, I read like 15 different opinions as to what this means. Uh, There's quite a wide range of what this means. Um, Some have said that it's as simple as a handshake is today. I don't know if I can see that. That's a pretty serious deal. Put your hand under my thigh. It's different than a handshake to me in my mind. But some have said um, that it is, it's no different than a handshake. Uh, it's it's uh, evidently still customary in India that when you make a promise, you swear by something that you would still do this. Um, there are some that have said it has to do, it actually has to do with um, the, the promised seed. There are some that have said a number of different things. And so to keep it simple tonight, let us just know that if one man puts his hand under another man's thigh to swear, you know it's serious. Okay. We'll keep it there. There's a number of different things we can look at. We'll keep it there. It's serious. It's also important to know it's a picture of submission. Here, the servant is putting his hand under the thigh of his master. It's a picture of submission. We see it again later uh, with Joseph in the very same way. So uh, Abraham's head servant is Eleazar. We learned that previously. So the head servant that's being talked about is Eleazar. Um, where have we heard his name before? And what does this reveal about God's provision? Do you remember where we heard that name before, Eleazar? I'll give you a hand. It was in the Genesis study. Yes. This is beautiful. Turn to chapter 15. It's a couple pages before. As I was writing my notes, I wrote out his name. I wrote Eleazar. He's the head servant, so we know. And as I wrote that, I thought, where was the last time I saw that? And it's in 15. Verse 2, it says, but Abraham said, Abraham is mourning at this point and he's crying out to God because he doesn't understand how it's all going to work out. At this point, Abraham's very old, as good as dead, as Hebrews says. And Abraham's crying out to God saying, God, I, I don't have offspring. I don't have anyone who's in my blood. I don't have a son. And so it looks like as I'm coming here to the end of my life that Eleazar, my servant, will inherit everything. And he says, But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And right after that, we see the Lord comfort Abraham with more of his promises. 
But look at the beauty of this. The one who just nine chapters before that Abraham is saying, God, it looks like Eleazar is going to inherit everything because I continue childless. How does this work, God? The next time that Eleazar is mentioned, he's going to find a wife for Isaac. This is beautiful. It's a beautiful picture of God's provision. He's going to find a wife for the son who was provided as the Lord had promised. So here, the next time we see Eleazar, he's on mission to go find a wife for Isaac. Turns out he did not inherit uh, Abraham's household. Abraham did not continue childless because God kept his promises. Beautiful picture of redemption there. It shows us uh, beautiful God's, uh, how beautiful God's provision is. So Abraham is entrusting Eleazar to do what? To take a wife for Isaac. Uh, and, he, and he includes three conditions. The first condition is don't take a wife from the Canaanites. What does this reveal about Abraham's motive? Abraham's saying, I'm charging you to find a, a wife for Isaac. It's time. He's 40. Find a wife for Isaac. But first things first, don't take a wife from the Canaanites. Why? What does this reveal about Abraham's motive? Yes, yeah, what, what did we see about Abraham's motive when he bought um, the burial place for Sarah and his family? What do we see there? Yeah, he didn't, he didn't want to be placed under obligation to the Hittites for such a small thing. Kind of this picture of I'll not offer to God that which cost me nothing. And so here, the motive that we saw when he bought that was, I'm not here to try and buy up land and gain an even footing with you guys. God's promised me this land. This is my promised land. So I don't need to try and buy this up and become unequal to you, to you guys. And here we're seeing the same thing. Don't take a wife from the Canaanites. One of the things we see about his motive is he's not trying to marry one of his kids into their bloodline so as to gain a footing with the people. He, he wants pure Hebrew blood because he sees the importance of God's promise in this. And so here we see that he, he could say, all right, well, this will be a good political move. Why don't you marry into the Canaanites? We'll find your wife. You're 40. You're, you know, it's time to get a wife. And we'll just get one from the Canaanites. No, we see that his motive is much more pure than that and that God has said he will provide. And so he's saying, let's go 450 miles back home and let's find a wife from our bloodline for Isaac. Abraham, uh, the second thing he says is, go to my country and my kindred and take a wife from my son Isaac. Why is this necessary if Abraham has been called away from his homeland? We already said it, but I want to reiterate it. Abraham was called away from his homeland, right? So why is he saying go back there to get a wife for Isaac? It has to do with the bloodline. It has to do with that pure Hebrew blood. It has to do with hearing God's promises and not intermingling it with the Canaanites and Hittites and all this so as to um, confuse or put yourself under obligation to another people. But he says go back to my homeland and God will provide the wife for Isaac. And that third thing he says, oh, before we go to the third thing, notice that Eleazar never worries about uh, what Isaac's response would be to the servant choosing a wife for him. Now, this is a big rat's nest. Uh, What do you think most young men would say about this method of finding a wife? What do you think they would say? Would they be up for it? Would they embrace it? Uh, How do most young men go about finding a wife these days? Hoping for some interesting conversation here. Online? Online? That's probably not something that they thought of. Eliezer. Go to dating.com. 
Yeah, online. What are some other ways that young men go about finding a wife these days? You can say it. I mean, just want ads. Yeah, yeah. You're seeking someone. Okay, that sounds easy enough. Hope you're pretty. Church, club, that's a big one. Go to the club. Find that perfect godly lady. School, college, Starbucks. It's a big one here in Greenville. Closest thing we have to a club. Um, what else? Friends. What's that method usually look like? Is it a real prayerful, slow process? Pursuit, make sure she's good looking first. Casual. Are the parents really involved in, in the dating processes these days? No. Yeah, th- this whole thing, when I'm looking at this and I'm reading this, it's interesting to me that Eleazar doesn't say, Abraham, what if Isaac's not cool with this? That's not a worry of his. He's seen how submissive Isaac is. He knows the character of Abraham. He knows that Isaac submits to his father because he sees God's hand all over him. And here what we see is a young man, a 40-year-old man, who desires a wife but desires what God wants for his life. And so I'm sitting here thinking with all my cultural junk that I have up in my head, I'm thinking, oh man, what if Isaac's not cool with that? He has no reason not to be cool with that. God provides. He can trust his father because of God's work in his father's life. Now, this, I was reading through the history of dating, and I have two daughters, and it just terrified me today. And yesterday, as I was reading through the history of dating, the word dating can actually be traced back to prostitution. Yeah, how do you like that? And so you can actually trace it back to where you see a man uh, buying dinner and expecting something in return, essentially. And they're, they're, uh, Mark Driscoll, pastor up in Seattle, who's a little bit crazy, but, but good, um, he, said, uh, he actually has made some arguments that uh, current day dating is not much different, that you buy dinner and you expect something in return. And so it's interesting because like late 1800s, there was this thing called courting. And now we have this thing called dating. And courting sounds like the mo- most old-fashioned crazy thing. If uh, any youth in the room, courting, is that, y'all up for that? Y'all do, okay, we've got one. And, uh, and um, sorry, you just made me laugh there, Alec. Um, this, uh, this picture is that um, there used to be courting. And so in the late 1800s, a guy would, would be interested in a young lady, and, and he would go to a house, and in the houses there were these things called parlors. And you would sit, and you would go in, and the young man would have to sit by mom and dad. And mom and dad would ask him some questions, and they would make a light meal. They didn't want to make a heavy meal because they didn't want him to stay too long because they might not like him. But they would make a light meal, some pastries and tea or whatever, and they would sit and they would talk, and they would ask the young man questions, and what were his intentions, and what were his plans, and all these things. And it was a very slow process where the parents actually had input. And so here's like this one-minute crash course on history of dating that terrifies a guy with two young daughters. It went from that to there's the problem. Men always had an issue with sexual morality, and there's like times in our history where there were people who found it a good, responsible thing to do. Like they didn't want men to be attracted to the ankles on the table, so they would buy the long tablecloth that covered the ankles on the table because of the sexual immorality of men. This has always been an issue. And so what we saw at the end of the 1800s is there was this, this thing that was called courting, and you would go, and it, was, it, was, it took time, and the parents had a lot of say in what happened. And then at the turn of the, in the 1900s, the first women's magazine came out, 
And so rather than hearing what mom and dad had to say about what it meant to be a man and a woman, that you could go get this first women's magazine that said, this is how you need to be prettier. This is what you need to attract a man. And all these things, and there were a million subscribers, supposedly, to this first women's magazine. So now when you go see a magazine rack, and there's 8,000 magazines, you're like, why are all those there? Because people want them. People are hungry for them. They think that's where they can get the information they need to be successful in life and whatever it is. And so then, uh, as the automobile went into mass production... There was not so much go in, meet mom and dad, sit, get grilled, ask questions, and take a slow time. Now, um, Goober drives up to the house and honks the horn, and there's not as much interaction. Cars go into mass production. Now there's more time for um, them not to be at home. Cities are growing. There's, there's a, a city life now, and there's clubs, and there's all these things. And then mid-1900s, there's this sexual revolution, and this magazine called Playboy comes out. And now um, they're going to say what it means to, to be a man and to be a woman. And, and uh, Marilyn, uh, Marilyn Monroe was on the cover, and she was naked and sexual, and that was what it meant to be a real woman. And you just see this 50-year collapse. And so as I'm studying this dating and courting and how courting's going by the wayside and dating's weird and all these things, I'm thinking, I have two daughters, and they're just not going to date. It's just not going to happen. And the first, I'm going to question them for weeks. I'm going to question these young men. And so, but you see this thing where there was all these issues that came up over the course of dating where, you know, you, you could just go pick someone up in a car, and someone could be in a very intimate relationship with a person and never have met the parents. And this is an issue. It's very different. So when we read that someone's going to find a wife, a trusted servant of the house is going to find a wife for Isaac, that sounds so foreign and weird to us, but it wasn't at the time. And in fact, it was extremely appropriate. And it's only within the last hundred years that we became so weird and wicked and really culturally um, encouraged and, you know, date as many people as you can and have casual encounters and all these things. That's not normal to a lot of our history. And so... Um, here we see that Isaac's okay with it and Eleazar is going. And the third thing is, he said, don't take my son back there. What would be the possible threat of Isaac going back to his homeland? <coughs> Want to stay there, yeah. You could see a real disconnectment, uh, disconnectment, pff, that's not even a word, a disconnect and detachment of Isaac from the promised land. And we don't want that. We want Isaac in the promised land. And so we don't even want to tempt him in going back to uh, the homeland. Um, in Ben's office, he has a note on the wall that as I was reading through verses 7 through 9, it was encouraging to me. The, the note on Ben's office wall says, the faithful and the crazy look a lot alike. The faithful and the crazy look a lot alike. In verses 7 through 9, we see what Abraham, Father Abraham, wise Father Abraham's master plan is to find the perfect wife for Isaac. And he says... See to it that you do not go take my son back there. Then verse 7, The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me to your offspring, I will give this land. He'll send an angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. I'm reading that. I'm thinking, really? That's your big plan, Father Abraham? That's your big plan to make sure that Isaac gets the, the, the right wife. My first thought was, really? That's all you've come up with. Isaac is 40 unmarried with no prospects. The blessing of the entire earth and all future generations is completely dependent upon Isaac getting married and making some babies. You have nothing more than go to my hometown and God will send an angel before you. That's it. That's the plan. That's the, you're over a hundred years old. You've had plenty of time to think this through. That's the plan. Are you crazy, dumb, 
Just foolish. You have no previous arrangements, no names, no addresses, just God will send an angel. This sounds crazy. But when I was thinking about that, I was thinking about that note on his wall, the crazy and the faithful look a lot alike. This isn't crazy. It's, in fact, beautiful, beautiful faithfulness. See, what Abraham is doing is he's looking back at what God has done, and he's depending on God's promises. He's calling to mind how angels came to visit him in his tent to announce the arrival of his child. He knows that God can do that. So what he's showing here, rather than just haphazard, old, senile foolishness, is he's being very faithful and knowing that God, while he's mindful he himself plays a role in the selection of Isaac's wife, and he's mindful that Eleazar, the servant, plays a role in the selection of Isaac's wife, but ultimately God chooses Isaac's wife. And so here, while he looks crazy and unprepared, it's very faithful. And uh, this faithfulness is a good motivation for us to be praying for the future spouses of our little ones, knowing it's ultimately God who will bring them together. We can and should play a role, but ultimately our faithfulness is not in our ability, but in God's ability to choose rightly for our kids. In verses 10 through 11, we see Eleazar take a great, uh, great care in his preparations and showing great wisdom in his approach. First of all, let's look at his preparations in, in, in verse, verses 10 through 11. The servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor, and he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. First, the preparations and then the approach. The preparations. Why would he take worldly riches with him as part of his preparation? Why do y'all think that is? Camels and gifts and gold and bracelets. Why is that important? Why would he take that to go find a wife? What? Bribery? Um, yeah, well, he, he, uh, it wasn't bribery. We'll, we'll, we'll establish that. What? Good standing? Means, yeah, yeah, this is important. Here, here's what I was thinking about. I was trying to personalize it. I think it's to show that he's legit and he's not a schemer. This is a 450-mile journey that he hopes to return home with a wife for Isaac. As a parent, it's not likely that I would willingly send my daughter 450 miles away to be married on the simple word of a stranger who has no evidence to back up his story. I come from a great house. There's many, my, uh, my master has been blessed by God abundantly and his name has been made great. Really? You by yourself? You walk? Did you walk? What's the deal? You, Really? You're abundant? Okay, well, let me get my daughter and send her 450 miles with you since you have nothing to back up your story. It's to show that he's legit and that he's a schemer. He's showing wisdom in this. He's not trying to wow them with riches. He's not trying to say, look at all this gold that will be your houses and your daughters. He's not trying to do that. He simply makes good preparations, wise preparations, to show that he's legit. Yeah, yeah. That's actually a really, really common theme that we've seen in the last 15, 20 years. Guys who, rather than preparing a place and getting it ready and then coming along and getting married, they both get married with lots of debt, and it's a, it's a train wreck. And so here this picture, is a, it is a picture of preparation. Um, 
Uh, he's not a schemer. He has evidence to back up his story. His approach. So we saw his preparation showed wisdom, and now his approach. Why didn't Eleazar go straight to the house of Bethuel, walk in and say, I think you know why I'm here. I was told an angel had already visited you here. Where's Isaac's wife? Why didn't he do that? His approach was wise. Why, didn't, why don't you think he did that? Or maybe he should have. What did he do instead of doing that? What did he do? Where'd he go? Went to where the women were. Very wise. When you're looking for a wife for someone, go to where the women are. He takes his responsibility seriously, and he wisely takes time to observe the women, exercising discernment, not as a weirdo in the bushes watching them at the well. I I couldn't get that picture out of my head as I was thinking about this. I was like, all right, so he just sat there and watched. That's weird. But that's not what it was, so don't let that distract you. Uh, uh, He can see how they will deal with a stranger who needs a drink and has camels to water from a 450-mile journey. What do we know about camels and water? They drink a lot of water. How many camels does he have? Ten. Okay. What do we know about Rebecca? She's a female. And what do we know about her carrying water potential? Yeah, does she have like an irrigation system hooked up? No, what does she have? A jar. And there's 10 camels. 450 mile journey. She's not, it's not like, oh, there's a puppy dog. I'll give him a little water. Look how sweet I am. She's watering 10 camels. This is a big deal. There's a lot going on here. So he takes his responsibility seriously, and he wisely takes time to watch and observe, how are these people going to deal with a stranger who needs help? What are we going to learn about the character of these women or the woman that he's looking for? And then in verse 12, in his wisest move yet, Eleazar stops, and he prays to God as he observes. Look at what he says in verses 12 through 14, because it's, it's curious, it's weird. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know you have shown steadfast love to my master. What's weird about this? What's weird about this prayer? What feels awkward about it? It's pretty real specific, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, He's praying to Abraham's God, and he's telling Abraham's God what? What to do? Yeah. All right, God, here's where I'm at. I'm going to need you to give me a little sign here. Lots of ladies at the well. I'm a little confused. So I'm going to say this, and whoever says this back, I'll know by that way that you actually love Abraham. That's weird, right? It seems weird at first. Because when we pray for signs, what are the kind of signs we usually pray for? What? I'll start us off dumb. Dumb signs. What else do we pray for? What kind of signs? Make it easy. God, I know this is what you want me to do if it's super easy. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. What, what other kind of signs do we pray for? Huh? Vague. Vague, dumb signs that are totally insignificant to the situation. I heard one lady, t- and this is not picking on ladies, it's picking on this dumb lady. She was talking about how she said, um, 
She said she, was, she wanted to find a husband, and she just really wanted a sign from God. And she said, God, who am I supposed to marry? And she opened up to the book of John, and she was like, John will be his name because I opened up to the book of John. And it's just a silly, silly approach when we ask for really silly signs. The kinds of signs that most people ask for when we're trying to make a right decision are signs that are totally insignificant to the situation. The difference here is that the sign that Eleazar asks for is very significant. It's not just dumb. He's not saying, the one who's shorter than the other, who walks with a limp, who, what, I mean, there's, it's not insignificant. What he says is very significant. The Exposer's Bible Commentary says, but the sign he chose was significant because it was dependent upon the character of the girl herself. What was the sign? If she does what? Yeah. When I ask her for a drink, I want her to not only give me a drink, but water the camels. What he finds out in that sign is something significant about her character. And so, a sign must reveal her good-heartedness and readiness to oblige and courteousness activity in the entertainment of strangers. So there's a difference between significant signs and insignificant signs. An example is, uh, consider the young man desiring to find the woman of his dreams, the one he would spend the rest of his life with. And imagine him praying two different prayers, asking God for a sign. The first prayer would be something like this. This is the dumb one. God, I pray that you would give me a sign that the girl I'm supposed to spend the rest of my life with would be wearing a green dress. If she has the green dress on, it'll be obvious that she's the one I'm supposed to spend the rest of my life with. This sheds no light on the situation. It is totally insignificant to the girl's character, to the purpose, to the the future they might have together. A green dress, something that insignificant. Those are the kinds of silly signs that we are wasting our time with if we're asking God for them. The sign he's praying for is inconsequential and insignificant to have any understanding in making a good decision. In receiving the sign, let's say he sees girl in green dress. Now what? Fantastic. Hey, honey, you're wearing a green dress, and I prayed earlier that I was supposed to meet my wife, and she had a green dress on, and you're wearing a green dress, so we're supposed to get married. You will get a restraining order put on you. It's inconsequential and insignificant. In receiving the sign, you've learned nothing about the character of your future wife. But let's say you pray in a different way. Let's say you pray for a sign from God that your future wife would be evident in her love for Jesus and her character of benevolence and hospitality. That you would pray that you would see a sign and that she loves the word and she cherishes her time with the Lord. See, if you receive this sign, it's significant. It's very significant and that you learn something of her character. So there's a difference. Like when I first read that, I thought, well, he's praying for a sign from God? What is that? It's such an important story. Why do we have him goober praying for a sign? But it's not an inconsequential, insignificant sign. It's a sign that reveals something of her character, and it will inform his judgment and his decision-making as he selects a wife for Isaac. So it's important. I love verse 15. What does verse 15 say? Before he had finished speaking, behold... Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her jar on her shoulder. I love this, but because before he's finished voicing the prayer, before he's finished saying what he wants to say to God, Rebekah shows up. What does that mean? What does it mean that God was already doing? Does it mean that he had to finish his prayer? God, I wanted to remind you that I'm here trying to find a wife for Isaac. And God, I want to remind you this is really important. So God, here's what I want. Here's what I need. Here's what we're going to do. And so when I say amen, God, 
Wait till I say amen. When I say amen, I want you to begin to move God and tell her to come here. We, sometimes we have this total misconception that we're praying to remind God of what's needed. That we're praying to say, God, I don't know if you know how screwed up this situation is, but let me tell you. I love that before he finishes uttering the words of his prayer, Rebecca shows up. Because that means that God was already moving Rebecca to pick up her jar and leave the house and go to the well. God was already doing what God was going to do before Eleazar prayed. It's a picture of God's provision. I love it. Um, Rebecca shows up. What a great reminder that God knows our deepest needs before we voice them. When we pray, we're not reminding God of what's going on. We're showing that we trust Him, that He's a sovereign God, that He's already doing things. It'd be good if sometimes we prayed and said, God, I'm thankful for what you're already doing in this situation. This situation looks horrible, dire circumstances. I don't know how this is going to work out, but God, I praise you because I'm not reminding you of anything new right now. I praise you because you're a God who's already at work doing what you want to do to receive the glory that you'll receive in this. And so here, it's beautiful because before he's done voicing the prayer, Rebecca shows up like, oh God, I guess you're already moving. Yes, he was. He already moved her to leave home, to come to the well before Eleazar was finished. And verses 16 through 20. The young man was very, the young man, the young woman was very attractive in appearance and the maiden of whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up and the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and she gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink. She said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and she ran again to the well to draw water and she drew for all his camels. This is verses 16 through 20. Look at what he's able to learn by taking just some time to simply observe the situation. A lot of times we are so gung-ho about getting things done and making sure that these things are covered that we never take time to sit and say, okay, God, what are you doing here? What's going on? What can I observe about this situation or this person? Rather than just talking and talking and talking and praying and praying and talking and talking and going and going and going, sometimes we need to sit, sit back, shut up, and observe what's going on. And a lot of times, I know I'm not very good at that. But here's what, look at what he's able to learn about Rebecca in this simple time of observation. Look what he's able to learn. First, Rebecca's hot, attractive in appearance. And he's not the creepy guy in the bushes, but that, that's weird. Rebecca's hot, attractive in appearance. Rebecca's pure, a maiden who no man had known. Rebecca is benevolent and generous. Quickly, she let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. She's Really generous because she said, I will draw water for your camels also. He didn't say, hey, um, I got like 10 camels. They're pretty thirsty. He didn't even have to say that. She just observed the need and she met it. She's benevolent. She's generous. And she's diligent. She quickly emptied her jar to the trough and ran again to the well. She's diligent. And she's thorough because she drew for all the camels. It's kind of weird to picture. It's this... Very attractive lady who's like going just 90 to nothing, getting, making sure everything's good and being nice. And, Are you okay? Okay, good. I'm going to take care of the camels. Okay, one bucket, two bucket, three bucket. I mean, there's no telling how many times she went back and forth to the well. But here, just in observing, she's attractive in appearance. She's pure, benevolent, and generous. Very generous to go and feed the cam- to water the camels. Diligent. She quickly emptied. She ran, and she's thorough because she took care of all of them. 
Here's what I want us to walk away from the study tonight. Hopefully we walk away with more than this because I'd be narrow-minded, but I hope we at least walk away with being mindful of God's perfect timing and provision. God's perfect timing and provision. I have heard so many lessons on this, and I always need to hear it again. These are the kinds of things that when we stir one another up by way of reminder, we need to be reminded that God's timing is perfect, His provision is perfect. What do we have a tendency to do when we feel that God has not opened a door that we feel should have been opened by now? What do we have a tendency to do? Make our own plan. God didn't open the door, I will kick it in. That's what we have a tendency to do. God, I think that this is what we should do. God, I need this job. A week later, God, you didn't provide the job, I'm kicking the door open. I'm not waiting anymore. See, a lot of times that comes in different forms. We kick it in. Our impatience and our lack of faith have caused us to create unbiblical sayings such as, God helps those who help themselves. I had, I had that written in the front of my Bible when I was younger, God helps those who help themselves. And I had a little dash because I didn't know where it was in the Bible, but I figured someone would tell me someday. So I put the little dash there. And then of all people, Neil McClendon, one of the nicest jerks in the world, um, if you know him, uh, he, he, he saw that in the front of my Bible and said, dude, that's not biblical, what are you doing? And he actually scratched it out for me. And uh, God helps those who help themselves. That's not biblical. It isn't, uh, it's actually unfaithful license to move forward when we're tired of waiting on God. But he commands us to wait. Wait. Be patient. See, the way that we kick the door in is not that we always just take the reins, but a lot of times, almost every time, I was thinking about it this afternoon, when we kick the door in that God hasn't opened, a lot of times what that results in is settling for far less than what God intended for us. And, and it's and it, settling for less in different ways. Sometimes it may mean that you're waiting on a job or something and you settle for less. Sometimes it may mean that you decide to find comfort in a way that God never intended you to find comfort. Sometimes it results in addiction because you've settled for less than what God wanted because you weren't patient and waiting on what God's intention was. We'll talk about that more in one second, but I want to read these verses. I was just going through and looking at all these verses on patience and waiting and God's intention and the way that God's people speak to one another and encourage one another. And I'm not going to share where all these are. If you care to know, you can ask me afterwards. I just want to read through these almost in narrative form. Just this overwhelming scriptural mandate to be a patient people, a people who aren't quick to kick a door open just because God didn't open it when we wanted him to. Listen to this. And you can just listen. Pretend it's a story. You can close your eyes if you need to. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. A lot of times it's our pride that causes us to think we can kick the door open that God hasn't opened. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. In tribulation. Not happy times necessarily in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Love is patient and kind. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. We're not a big fan of the late rains. You also, be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. Jeremiah Burroughs wrote that whole book, Rare Drill of Christian Contentment, from this premise. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. Not murmuring, not whining, not fretting, not complaining, but in silence. For from Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. But if we hope for what we do not see, 
We wait for it with patience. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and patience. May you be strengthened, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Lead me in your truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord, exclamation point. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently. Ooh, they're together right there. Wait patiently for him. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. O Lord, be gracious to us as we wait for you. Be our arm in every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. How easy it would have been for Isaac. Here Isaac's 40. How easy it would have been for Isaac at 40 years of age who knew that his role in this life was dependent upon having a wife and a family. How easy it would have been for him to grow impatient. How easy it would have been for him not to wait on the Lord's timing and to take for himself a wife from his choosing from the Canaanites. It would have been so easy for him to do that 40 years in, knowing how important it was that he had a family. How easy it would have been for him to be lured by the double blessing of gaining a footing with the Canaanites by marrying into their bloodline and producing offspring. I'm thinking about those right now, some in this room, some that I've just talked to this week, who are waiting on a lot of different things. And I know that already, as some people I've talked to, they have a tendency to try and find comfort in other ways. There's these certain ways that we kick down the door by trying to find comfort in anything from TV to alcohol to any other thing. And that's, that's settling for far less than what God would have for us because of our impatience. But I'm thinking of those that I know right now, some who are in this room, who are waiting on different things. Some are waiting on the healing of a loved one. Some are waiting on the conceiving of children. Some are waiting on the adoption of children and a process that's so uncertain. Some, I know, have an adoption process where they're doing kind of this normal thing over here, but then there's a private adoption over here, and they kind of got both going on, and they're waiting. A new job. Some are waiting on marriage, trying to find the right person. Some are waiting for financial freedom and to be rid of the burden that is just making them feel like they're dragging their feet every day. All of these things are scenarios that can tempt us to try to take matters into our own hands and stop trusting God because we're so eager to walk by sight and not by faith. So the encouragement is wait on the Lord. Be patient. Don't do away with faith because we desire to walk by sight. The, Expo the Expositor's Bible Commentary makes another statement. I wanted to end with this reading. And uh, 
And he's kind of saying what Abraham would say to us through Isaac, who are waiting on those things, those very real things. Uh, there's probably things that I did not mention that are very real to people who say, man, I've been waiting on this, and I'm burdened by this, and I'm doing my best to fight anxiety, but it keeps creeping in every day, and the burden feels too heavy, and it's hard to always remember that God doesn't lay a heavy burden on light shoulders. But listen to this encouragement. To everyone whose heart urges such murmurs, Abraham, through Isaac, would say, but if you wait for God, you get something, something positive good, and not some mere appearance of good. A lot of times when we settle for less and we try to kick the door open that God has not opened, what we're doing is we're settling for what we see as an appearance of good, but it's not actually good. It's just something of the flesh, something to appease us. Like the guy who's depressed and he goes and gets drunk and he thinks that that actually does make him feel better only to find out the next morning he didn't feel better at all. It was not good. It was only an appearance of good. If you wait for God, you truly get something good, not an appearance of good. If you follow some other way than that which you believe God wishes you to lead in, you get nothing. So if you know that God has a way for you to go and he has a plan and he's even revealed it in the scriptures, Maybe he's given you glimpses of what you're supposed to do and you decide, I just don't want to wait on it. I'm going to kick this other door down. You get nothing. God may keep us, believers, children of the promise, longer waiting than the world does, but he gives us never the wrong thing. Isaac, as we're going to see in the next week or two, as we come to the end of the chapter and look at that marriage between the two of them, look at that it looks like a Hollywood movie scene where they're running to each other slow motion in the, in the field to love one another. Forty years waiting. God may keep us longer waiting than the world does, but he gives us never the wrong thing. Isaac had no idea of Rebecca's character. He could only yield himself to God's knowledge of what he needed. And so there came to him from a country he had never seen, a helpmeet singularly adapted to his own character. So in other cases where you find you must give yourself very much in God's hand, maybe there's a season of uncertainty, you're having to wait on things that you're really tired of waiting on. In those cases where you find you must give yourself very much in God's hand, what he sends you will be found more precisely adapted to your character than if you choose it yourself. What he gives you, what he provides for you, will be more perfectly adapted to your character and how he has formed you than if you were to make the, the, the decision yourself. What he sends you will be found precisely adapted to your character than if you chose it for yourself. You find that your whole nature has been considered. A lot of times when we make decisions outside of God's will and we try to kick a door down that he has not yet opened and we try to settle for less or we try to self-medicate on whatever number of things we can self-medicate on, we're doing that with our senses. We're making decisions based on what we can see and what we can hear and what we can taste and, and, it's, and it's totally according to our senses. But when God makes the decision for us and he provides for us and his provision is so timely and so full, he takes into account our entire character. And that, that gives us back to that thought that he knows our deepest needs before we voice them. Much like when Eleazar sitting there praying, saying, God, this is what we need. This is what's got to happen. And before he was done praying, Rebecca had already shown up. God was already at work. And so I want us to be encouraged tonight, at the very least, that God, his timing is perfect. His provision is perfectly abundant. And it's according to his plan and his will. And it takes patience. I mean, all those verses, again, and that's just a sampling of them. That's not all of them. Of patience and waiting and a soul that is silent and not fretting. 
In Jeremiah Burrow's book, he, he explains that there are a number of us who uh, are like the leather shoe that on the outside we look very neat and cool and calm and collected, but inside it pinches the flesh. And so our souls have a voice that only God can understand, and sometimes they're whining and they're vexing and they're fretting. And we look okay on the outside, but we're truly maybe not trusting God fully on the inside. And so this, uh, this, at least these first 25 verses, and really the rest of them up to the 67th verse in this chapter, I hope encourage us to see that God is perfect in His provision and His timing. And it takes patience, and it takes waiting, and it takes community. Because if you're not in a community where someone's saying, wait, be patient, don't be hasty in that decision, be careful in that. Have you talked about that with someone? What kind of wisdom and discernment did you use to make that decision? If that's not happening, in, in solitude, you're regularly going to be stepping into traps and problems and snares that otherwise you would not have experienced had you been in community with people who are reminding you of God's provision and how great He is and how timely He is.